Hello? 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 Yes, this is MCO. Hello? This is MCO. Hello? 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 This is another MCO and transmission. Okay. Welcome, everybody, to our Sutra Study Sunday. Uh, tonight, we are returning to the classics. Uh, we are returning to the so-called Pali Canon, which are the collection of kind of early Buddhist sutras, or suttas, as they're called in the Pali language. Um, and we are going to be reading from the Diga Nikaya. The Nikayas are these collections. These are Nikayas, collections of sutras. This is the Diga Nikaya, the collection of long discourses of the Buddha, also known as the greatest hits of the Buddha, because not only are they the Maha Suttas, not only are they Maha because they're long, but they're Maha because they're great. So the Diga Nikaya is considered to be the most important suttas. Um, the middle length dis discourses, or the, the B-sides, I didn't bring in, doesn't concern us tonight. Uh, but then this Nikaya, this collection of Pali suttas, is called the Samyutta Nikaya. And the Samyutta means connected discourses. I brought this in for only one reason. Um, tonight we are going to be talking about sutra number 15 in the Diga Nikaya, the long discourses. We're going to be reading the Mahanidana Sutta, the great Maha. Sutta or discourse on Nidana, or actually the 12 Nidanas. All right? So we're going to be talking about causation, dependent origination, otherwise known as Pratitya Samutpata. That's what we're going to be talking about tonight. It's the content of this sutra, the Mahanidana Sutra. It's what this is all about. But what I wanted you to know, though, is that in this collection of suttas, there is a whole section of this collection, a, a bunch of little sutras that are about Nidana. This is actually called the Nidana Samyutta section. This is a whole portion just for sutras about this idea. The one I'm reading to you tonight is the great discourse on Nidanas. This is it. This is definitive. All right? But I brought this in for one particular reason. The thing or the idea that we're going to be talking about tonight is called the 12-link chain of causation, classically called. The 12 links in the chain are the 12 nidanas, this word nidana, which means a cause, to cause something to be. And traditionally in Buddhism, there are 12 nidanas, and they are presented in a circle, which I've written on the board here, with these 12 links in the chain. This is how our world comes into existence. And, in particular, how, our, how we become repeatedly trapped in the cyclical process of death and rebirth. That's what we're talking about tonight. These 12 links in the chain that I've written up here, you'll notice that three of them are in blue. And it's because, for a very particular reason, the Mahanidana Sutta that I'm about to read to you from is apparently from a scholastic point of view, this appears to be the oldest, most original presentation of this idea. 
in which there, at a time when there was only nine links in this chain of causation. Now, the other three links are actually in here, and I'm going to point them out to you. But there's just something going on with this sutra tonight. This idea that we're going to talk about at length, pratitya samutpata, dependent origination or dependent co-origination, codependent arising, interdependence, those are all ways to translate this one idea of things arising together, pratitya samutpata. This idea is, this is it. This is the idea that makes Buddhism Buddhism, that makes it unique among world philosophies, sciences, you name it, is this idea of codependent arising. So we're going to get into that. And again, traditionally, this phenomena that is the principle at work in the manifestation of our reality, this phenomena is described in these 12 links and these 12 links in this chain are, yes, they're going to describe how our world comes into being, how our suffering comes into being, all of that. But the version that I'm going to read mostly from, the original, the Mahanidana Sutta, it leaves out these three links and it deals with a kind of a very specific aspect of this worldview, which is it's very interested in how beings come to be reborn into this world, live in this world and then die and then get trapped and swing back into this world. This is tonight, the initial inquiry is why and how do beings keep getting snatched back up into the samsaric cycle? How do we keep getting snatched back up into the samsaric cycle? That's the question. But what I'm going to do tonight is what I do every night which is, this is a very old idea. This, is, this could be 3,000 years old. This idea could easily be 3,000 years old. And I just said it's the foundation of Buddhist thinking. It's what makes Buddhism Buddhism in terms of worldview. But Buddhism's 3,000 years old, 2,500 years old. It's a very old tradition. And so we've added some links. We've added some ideas, some ways of thinking about this all the way up until the modern time when people are dealing with this idea and kind of readapting it for the modern world. And I'm going to try to explain all of that. Not just the oldest, earliest version of this, not some middle period good version of this, and not just the latest, greatest version of this. I kind of want you to see the whole arc of it. See how the idea developed, changed, morphed, and all of that. Okay? But so that nobody thinks that tonight is anything but Pali Suttas, Theravada Canon. I brought this in only to share with you this. This is from the first sutta in the Nidana Samyutta section. So the little section in the Samyutta Nikaya, the little section that deals exclusively with, with this idea of Nidanas, the very first uh, one, skipping the thus have I heard preface, and what bhikkhus and what seekers is pratitya samudpata, what is dependent origination, with ignorance, avidya, with ignorance as a condition, volitional formations or samskara come to be. 
with samskara or volitional formations as a condition, consciousness or vijnana comes to be. With consciousness as a condition, nama rupa, name and form, come to be. With name and form as condition, the six sense bases come to be. With the six sense bases as a condition, contact comes to be. With contact as a condition, feelings or sensations. With feelings or sensations as a condition, craving. With craving as a condition, clinging. With clinging as a condition, essence or bhava. And with essence or bhava as a condition, birth. And with birth as a condition, aging and death. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, displeasure, and despair. All come into being. Such is the origin of this whole mass of suffering. Dukkha. This bhikkhus is called dependent origination. So, Samyutta as old as it gets, these are the 12 link chains. So just, so, I didn't want anybody to think it was some Mahayana invention, some Chinese whatever, and that the real links are only nine or something. I wanted you to know that all the other versions of this sutra list these 12 links in this order. Tonight, when I read this one, it's going to leave out a few links, and I actually want to use that omission to talk about their meaning. Why maybe why they were omitted, why maybe they're present, all of that. Okay? And I've only written all of this up here now so that I don't have to do it later. Okay, so forget everything I just said. <laughs> Thus have I heard. Once the Buddha, the Lord, was staying among the Kurus um, in a makeshift town called Kamasandama. So they didn't have anywhere to stay, so they made in the jungle sort of makeshift little village where all the monks were. And at that time, the venerable Ananda came to the Lord, saluted him, sat down to one side, and said, It is wonderful, Lord. It is marvelous how profound this pratitya samutpata, this dependent origination, is, and how profound it appears. And yet it appears to me as clear as clear. Do not say that, Ananda, said the Buddha. Do not say that. This dependent origination, this pratitya samutpata, is profound. And it appears profound. It is through not understanding, not penetrating this doctrine, that this generation has become like a tangled ball of string, covered as if in a mass of string, tangled like coarse grass, unable to pass beyond states of woe, ill destiny, ruin, and the round of death and rebirth, i.e. samsara. Did you hear what he said? It is from not understanding this, that this generation, our world, is like entangled in this mess and trapped in samsara. So Ananda, if anyone asks, has Jaramarana, has aging and death, getting old and dying. If, Ananda, you are asked, has getting old and dying a condition for its existence? You should answer yes. And if asked, what conditions 
Jana Marana. What conditions aging and death? What brings about aging and death? You should answer, aging and death is conditioned by birth. What conditions birth, you may ask? Essence or bhava conditions birth. So, what conditions aging, old age and death? You should answer that aging and death is caused by or conditioned by birth. And what causes or conditions birth? Essence conditions birth. And what conditions essence? Clinging is the necessary condition, is the cause for. Clinging is the cause for essence. Craving conditions clinging. Our feeling or sensations are the necessary cause or condition for craving. Contact conditions feeling. Contact conditions our fadana or our feeling. So this sutra calls it mind and body, name and form, nama rupa. Nama rupa. Name and form, mind and body. Causes or is the condition for contact. And consciousness is the necessary condition for name and form or mind and body. And if you are asked, has consciousness, has vijnana, a condition for its existence, a cause for its existence, you should answer yes. And if asked, well, what is the cause of consciousness? What is the condition for consciousness? You should answer, nama rupa. Mind and body conditions consciousness. So remember, this is the original Buddha, original formation. He says, Vijnana causes this nama rupa. I'm going to explain all this, by the way. We're just doing a quick pass. He says our consciousness is what causes this nama rupa thing to come into being. But then he says it's this nama rupa thing that causes our consciousness to come into being. Is the necessary cause for it or the condition for it. And he says this is kind of wrapped up in a little loop there. Thus Ananda, nama rupa, mind and body, conditions consciousness and consciousness conditions mind and body. Mind and body conditions contact. Contact conditions feeling. Feeling conditions craving. Craving conditions clinging. Clinging conditions essence. Essence conditions birth. Birth conditions aging and death. Aging and death leads to sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and distress. Thus, this whole mass of suffering, dukkha, comes into existence. I have said, I have just said, as a matter of fact, that birth conditions aging and death. Okay, so now we can do a little analysis. That's all we're talking about. These 12 things. That's all. That's it. These 12 things and how the one leads to the next, leads to the next, leads to the next. Okay? That's all we're dealing with. And so now, Ananda, this idea of nidana, a cause, or praditya samupatta, this sort of dependent causation, right? What are we talking about? I, you know, I kind of glossed over it with this idea of like, 
this leads to the existence of that, this conditions that. What, what do we mean by that, Ananda? Well, here's the deal. Ananda, I just said that birth conditions aging and death. And this is the way that it should be understood. If, Ananda, there were no birth at all, anywhere, of anybody or anything, Deva, Gandharava, Yaksha, ghost, human being, quadruped, bird, reptile, whatever it is, right? If there were absolutely no birth of anything at all, of any of these things, then with the absence of all birth, with the cessation of birth, could aging and death appear? Right? If nothing was ever born, would anything ever die? Simple dimple, right? <laughs> Ananda says, No, Lord. Therefore, Ananda, this, just this, is the root, the cause, the origin, the condition for aging and death, namely birth. Right? All right, Ananda. I just said that bhava, essence, conditions birth. So I should explain bhava. This is a tricky one, by the way. This word bhava is, I will do it in, in warning red. Bhava is normally translated as becoming. Bhava is this idea of the, the, an essence of something. And what I want to talk about very quickly is... Going, is this already that verb or a noun? Exactly. It's a noun. It's very much a noun. Like square, scare quotes, noun, thing, object. But yes, it's a noun. Here's something. Well, more importantly, what Buddhism talks a lot about is sva-bhava. And this idea sva-bhava means that something has its own essential essence. The sva is self, and the bhava means essence. There's actually, in Sanskrit and Buddhism, there's no confusion about what bhava means. What there's confusion about it is what it might mean in this, this system. If we understand that svabhava means something has its own essential nature, the idea of bhava is just an, is an essence. But what I want to tell you, though, is that for the first go-round of this sutra, meaning in the early days of the sutra, this sutra was, again, talking about how beings come into existence, like us. And so what bhava means in its original, original, original sense was an embryo. Conception. This is talking about conception, how babies are born. And so the bhava is the essence of a baby, a conceived fetus. Now, Buddhism has this wild idea that there's a something called a Gandharava, which is this sort of essence of some sort that goes flying into the mother's womb and is what impregnates her. They are talking about the Gandharava. They're talking about the essence of something. Now, 
this is, this is good old Buddhism. So we're going to take the rug right out from underneath that bhava. I'm going to show you how there's no bhava, and I'm going to show you how upadana, clinging, produces the notion of there being an essence of something. Both an atman essence, a self-essence, but also an other essence. The bhava, the, the bowl bhava. Does this have the bhava? Does this have the essence of a bowl? That's, that's the idea of essence or bhava. Something, like a thing that can be born and that can die. That's what we're talking about. So, and in this sutra, he will say that there are three sort of possible ways to be an essence. So, Ananda, I have just said that becoming bhava is the necessary condition, or bhava conditions birth, causes birth, right? If there were absolutely no essences in the world of desire, the realm of form, or the formless realm. So in this world, you're a deep meditator, and you get kind of, quote, reborn in a dhyana heaven, or you're even a deeper meditator, and you, quote, get reborn in the formless realm. There's still a notion of an essence, a being, somebody who's in the realm of desire, in the realm of form. So there being anything in the three realms, realm of desire, realm of form, or the formless realm, there has to be something for something to be born. And once something is born, it leads to it dying. Right? So this is, in a way, actually not as complicated, I think, as people make it out to be. It's just talking about there being something. Again, whether it's a zyg- what's that, a zygote, a little baby, or the essence of a thing, that something is, its, is what it is. Okay? And so this essence, or this bhava, is what causes or conditions birth. And if there were absolutely no essences in the world of sense desire, the realm of form or the formless realm, how could birth appear? It couldn't, Ananda says. No, Lord, therefore, this is just the condition of birth, namely essences or bhava. Now, I have also said, Ananda, that this upadana, clinging, clinging conditions this becoming, this bhava or this essence. If there were absolutely... No clinging, no sensuous clinging, no clinging to views, no clinging to rite and ritual, no clinging to atman, to a personality belief. If there were absolutely no clinging to anything, could any essence appear? Now that's a little, that's not quite as easy as the, if nothing was born, nothing could die. But I want you to know from a Buddhist point of view, it is as easy as that. It is as, as obvious and logical as that. But just hold on to it, because again, I'm gonna go, we're going to go through this a few times, and then we'll get to how possibly clinging could bring about essences. Right? By the way, though, one more time. This is talking about how, where babies come from. And so what they're talking about in terms of conception, like conception, is that it results from a lot of clinging, rolling in hay. <laughs> I, I'm not, I'm, I, you know me, I'm always being funny, but they're literally talking about that, that it's a lot of clinging that brings about essences. You can't have it. And you could even, 
I don't want to start doing this too much, but you could even backtrack and say, well, but what if I were making a Google baby? Meaning like if I were outsourcing my womb and outsourcing this and putting together the egg in a lab and then in, in, in utero some woman and who's going to carry it. That conception also is relying on a lot of clinging. Right? A lot of desire, a lot of wanting, a lot of travel, a lot of emails, a lot of phone calls. <laughs> and I'm also not kidding on that one either. Um, because he says... So this upadana, uh, so if there are absolutely no clinging, sensual clinging, clinging to views, clinging to rite and ritual, interesting one, or clinging to the atman, the personality belief, could any essence be appear, right? Now, let me translate this. This is usually a craving. but I wanted you to know that the word, the Sanskrit word tanha literally means thirst. So this craving, desire, right? That's what we're talking about. And again, if you're, you know, you study Buddhism, you know this, this is a no-no. This is the big problem, craving, right? And so this craving, oh, Ananda. So I also just said that craving, tanha, this thirst, is what conditions clinging, upadana. If there were absolutely no craving, craving for sights, for sounds, for smells, for tastes, for tangible objects, or mind objects, thoughts, if there were no craving for that, could clinging appear? And the idea is, is that this, this craving, this thirst is this desire, this wanting. And what he's saying is, is that this action of clinging arises from the wanting, from the desire. And if I didn't have such want and desire, I wouldn't cling. Right? Ananda. Vedana, sensations, feelings, condition the tanha, condition the thirst or the craving. If there were absolutely no sensations, sensations born of the eye, of the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, or the mind, in the absence of all feelings, with the cessation of all feelings, could craving appear? Now, this would be more of thinking of the meditative state. You're going all the way back going all the way in, you're even turning off the mind. So the mind is having no contact with dharmas. It's having no contact with ideas. The extra, you've got your eyes closed, essentially your ears closed. So you have no sensations. If you had no sensations of anything, could you have desire? Desire for what? Right? It's, it's, I can't. I can't have desire for, if there's nothing... So there's that. So he says, feeling or vedana conditions this craving. If there are absolutely no feeling, feeling born of the eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, or mind, in the absence of all feeling, the cessation of all feeling or sensations, vedana, could craving appear? No, Lord. Therefore, Ananda, just this, 
is the root, the cause, the origin, the necessary condition for craving. Namely, the dana. Let's just go through this again. Vedana, feeling, conditions craving. Right? And craving, oh no, this is the nice one. So, Ananda, check this out. Vedana, those negative, positive, and neutral sensations you're having all the time, right? Those Vedana conditions our thirst or our craving. Right? And this craving, interestingly enough, craving conditions seeking. Seeking conditions acquisition. Acquisition leads to decision-making. Decision-making leads to desire for outcomes. Desire for outcomes leads to leanings. It says attachment, but actually I looked it up and it means leanings, like you have a desire for this outcome rather than an outcome, right? So back again, all of these negative, positive uh, feelings or sensations, right? Condition our craving. Our craving conditions seeking. Seeking leads to acquisition. Acquisition is what leads to decision-making. Decision-making leads to desire. That desire leads to this leaning towards outcomes. Leaning towards outcomes leads to appropriation. Appropriation leads to avarice. Avarice leads to guarding of possessions. And because of the guarding of possessions, there arise the taking up of stick and sword, Quarrels, disputes, arguments, strife, abuse, lying, and all other evil, unskilled states in this world. That's it? I have said all these evil, unskilled states in this world arise because of the guarding of possessions. For if there were absolutely no guarding of possessions, would there be the taking up of stick or sword? Right? No, Lord. Therefore, Ananda, the guarding of possessions is the root, the cause, the origin, the condition for all evil, unskilled states. And I have just said that avarice is what conditions the guarding of these possessions. And I said that appropriation conditions that avarice, and that leanings condition that appropriation, and that lustful desire conditions the leanings, and that decision-makings conditions the lustful desires, and that acquisition conditions the decision-making, and that seeking conditions the acquisition. I have said, craving conditions seeking. Craving conditions this seeking. If there were no craving, would there be any seeking, Ananda? No, Lord. Therefore, Ananda, craving is the root, the cause, the origin, the condition for all seeking. Ananda, I've also just said that contact, sparsha, is what conditions or leads to the feelings. Therefore, contact is the root, the cause, the origin, the condition for all feelings. Right? So very quickly, I used this word a lot last Sunday. Contact is, is that. It's either contact via tactility, contact via sight, contact via sound. Contact is coming into contact with sense media. And that contact is what leads to us having sensations, positive, negative, and neutral sensations, right? Any questions so far? Good. What's the word sparsa? Sparsha. 
as a little diacritical mark on top there. Sparsha is the word. I have said, Ananda, that this nama rupa thing, mind and body, or name and form, is what conditions contact. Yeah, before I read this, let me explain nama rupa. So this is a very interesting idea in Indian philosophy, in Sanskrit, and certainly in Buddhism. In fact, it's one of those ideas that Buddhism... Like this sort of floats around a little bit in Upanishadic, kind of early Sanskrit philosophy. And it's one of those ideas, like samskara actually, it's one of those ideas that Buddhism said, Nama Rupa? Huh. And sort of took it and really thought a lot about it. And what Nama Rupa is, is Nama Rupa is usually translated as name and form. And last week and so many weeks, we spent a lot of time on this idea of Rupa form or shape. Literally, the form or the shape of something. Bananas are curved like that, right? Apples are round, basketballs are round, right? Things have a form or a shape to them. That's rupa. And then nama is actually where we get the English word name. So name and form is a fairly good translation. But what's really going on with nama rupa is nama rupa is the, the mind-body situation. In Buddhism, they talk about Nama Rupa as this situation, which is that I'm part form and part Nama. And Nama, it's like, yeah, I have a name, and it's kind of referring to the fact that I have a name, thus a bhava or an essence, but it's more referring to the psychological element of my being versus the physical element of my being. And what they talk about is that nama and rupa actually equal the five skandhas. And it is rupa, of course, that's one of them. And so the nama part actually refers to the sensations, perceptions, uh, conditioning, and consciousness. But they're kind of really focused on this consciousness aspect and so again we're talking about the mind-body situation but again this is so much more than that because on the one hand they're talking about Namarupaville over here look name and form it has a name it has a form oh look Namarupaville or they're talking about oh look Fiskandaville Fiskandaville there's something deeper here, though, and it has to do, I haven't even read it yet, but it has to do with a certain, um, I mentioned it a few weeks ago. In Western philosophy, you have the problem of the presupposition or the subject. The pre, this is actually, the word presupposition is actually the pre, beforehand, sub-position. That which comes first is at the bottom, and it's that which upon I throw everything else. And it's a presumption. It's a presupposition. And this is what I said last, or whenever I brought this up, I mentioned how Western philosophy assumes there's a baba here, assumes there's something here, and it just needs a name. It just needs a name. We could call it a bull, or we could call it a this, or we could call it a that. 
But it, it, that which needs a name, is presupposed. It's a presupposition, a presupposition. Western philosophy, it's the, the, this goes back to Aristotle and Socrates too, by the way, that it's like, well, we'll just skip over that, that whole first part, and we'll, then we'll go from there. It's very funny. But this Nama Rupa thing is exactly the same idea. So when Nama Rupa is not pertaining to a five skandha aggregation, but is referring just to like how the mind works, what it means is, is that the name of something and the form of something coexist. And that the mind sort of projects it together. Meaning that, oh look, a bowl-shaped thing. The name and form, the nama and the rupa, are actually like inextricable from each other. In exactly the same way that there's this idea of the thing that exists and then just needs a name. It's that same idea happening here. This will be important in a second. It might even be important right here. So, okay. This gets tricky because I could use their language, which is mind and body. I could use traditional language, which is name and form. Or I could use nama and rupa. Oh, and I don't want to confuse everybody, but he says that ananda, this nama rupa, mind and body, is what conditions contact by whatever properties, features, signs, or indications that the nama, the name, the mind factor, is conceived of by whatever properties, features, signs, or indications nama, the mind factor, is conceived of, would there, in the absence of those properties pertaining to the mind factor, be manifest, would there be manifest any grasping at the idea of form? So if the, he's kind of saying if there was no nama, could you have a rupa? And then he's going to say, or in the absence of any such properties pertaining to the rupa factor, the form factor, the body factor, would there be any grasping at sensory reaction on the part of the mind factor? So he's doing this thing that he's been doing all along with it. If you didn't have this, could you have that? But he's doing it internally to name and form and saying, could you even have name without form and form without name? Right? By whatever properties the mind factor and the body factor are designated in their absence, is there manifested any grasping at the idea or at any sensory reaction whatsoever? So what he's saying is, is that without this, would there be any of this? That's the, the idea of the dependent origination here. And he's saying, no, Lord. Questions, ideas, comments. Nama Rupa. I want to come back around to it. Again, we're just making our first pass through the circle. Uh, okay, so we've been through that. So now, then Ananda. Just this, namely Nama Rupa. Mind and body, name and form, is the root, the cause, the origin, the condition for all contact. Now, this is where... They, this has left out the six sense bases. This is what I talked all last week about. I had my crazy diagram with our six sense bases and the six consciousnesses. This is left out. But I, if, you, if you heard, he says that this contact is any contact that comes through the six senses. 
And he says, actually, these sensations are sensations born of the eye, ear, nose, tongue, body. And when he says thirst, he says craving for things born of, like, things to eat and things to smell. So there's a way in which the six sense bases, the six sadayatana, they're all implicit throughout this. And so it's no surprise that very quickly the Buddha or whoever inserted, just said, you know what, there's a step in between these. Right? That we've been presuming this whole time. So let's just put that in there. And I want to talk about the six senses relationship to name and form. But because they didn't talk about it, I'm going to hold off on that. All right. So, so then and just this, namely, Nama Rupa is the root, the cause, the origin, the condition for all contact. Even though really the six sense bases are the root for all contact. But again. So, from a Western standpoint, uh, and maybe it's related to what you described earlier, it seems like material world would cause us to put names on things. Uh, you know, you come to contact and then you try to build up some mental stuff on top of it. Mm. But it seems like it's totally the other way around. Exactly. That, right? Exactly. That, what this will sort of, you know, what we're getting to is this <laughs> idea of ignorance not understanding what's going on. And you just sort of articulated that, that the idea is that normally we think it goes this a certain way, but actually this is going to say, we've got it all wrong, and that's causing us all kinds of problems. And so I, or Buddha, is going to sort of try to straighten that out in terms of, well, explaining the Dharma. Right. So I have just said, Ananda, that consciousness, Vijnana, our classic Vijnana, our consciousness, right, is what conditions or causes nama rupa. If consciousness were not to come into the mother's womb, and this is where the, the scholar like myself is like, ah, this is when Buddhism thought of the, about the Gandharava going into the womb. And there's a point in Buddhist history for its early days where they believed in some floating Gandharava essences that floated into a mother's womb. Eventually, Buddhism not really rejects that idea, but they come to have this whole new idea of samskara or conditioning. Which, so I'm going to give you the more adapted or updated version of this, but I just want you to know that this is a time when Buddhism was thinking more scientifically about conception and how it happens. Michael, was that because the reproductive process of sperm and egg and all of that stuff wasn't understood? No, they actually understood sperm and egg. What they believed it was it was a third property. They believed that the sperm and the egg were strictly rupa, which is actually why I wanted to talk a little about this mind-body split, name and form, psychological, physiological. They believe that the physical sperm and the physical egg unite to create the physical, uh, what they would say, the four elements of the baby. But it has no psychic property yet until the Gandharava comes flying in and sort of bumps those that embryo into cognitive existence, not just formal elemental existence. Yeah. So he says, if, but it's, again, the, the logic of the reasoning of Pratitya Samudpata remains the same. I have said that Vijnana, our consciousness, is what conditions or brings about this Namarupa situation. If Vijnana, or consciousness, were not to come into the mother's womb, would mind and body develop there? Ananda says, no, Lord. 
And he says, or if consciousness vijnana, having already entered the mother's womb, if it were to be deflected, would mind and body come to birth in this life? And he says, no, Lord. Or if the consciousness of such a tender young being, boy or girl, were to be cut off, would mind and body grow, develop and mature? And Ananda says, no, Lord. Therefore, Ananda, just this namely consciousness is the root, the cause, the origin, the condition of Nama Rupa. That makes sense? I mean, if you think about what I just said, Nama Rupa is this whole cognitive process of naming things based on their form. Well, all of that happens because of cognition or vijnana. If there were no vijnana, no consciousness, what would be thinking about name and form? See what I'm saying? Nama, nama rupa is an activity of vijnana. It's how vijnana sort of processes information, if you will, is through nama rupa. And he's saying if there was no consciousness, no consciousness that flew into the womb, or no consciousness that even developed ever anywhere, could you have name and form? And Ananda's like, well, no. So there's that relationship, right? No, Lord. Therefore, Ananda, just this, namely, Vijnana consciousness, is the root, the cause, the origin, the condition for our Nama Rupa. And I have said, Ananda, that Nama Rupa is what conditions consciousness. Because if consciousness did not find a resting place in Nama Rupa, and this is where, again, Nama Rupa is a five skandha situation. And so there's this idea that if the Vijnana did not find home in Nama Rupa, right? If it did not find a resting place in Nama Rupa, would there subsequently be any arising and coming to be of birth, aging, death, suffering, all of that? Ananda says, no, Lord. Therefore, Ananda, just this, namely Nama Rupa, is the root, the cause, the origin, the condition of all consciousness. So this is where you get this. Vijnana is what is thinking about Nama Rupa, but Nama Rupa is what's causing there to be Vijnana in this sort of paradoxical loop. And it's in the paradoxical loop of the presupposition, in this idea of projection, and then you get it. I ignorantly project notion of bowl, and then, oh, look, a bowl. Anybody want a bowl? And then I just perpetuate it, right? That's the idea. All right. Uh, no, Lord. Therefore, Nanda, just this, namely Nama Rupa, is the root, the cause, the origin, the condition of all consciousness. So, thus far, Ananda, let's trace this back, he says. Birth and decay death and falling into other states and being reborn thus far extends the way of designation of concepts thus far is the sphere of understanding thus far the round goes as far as can be discerned in this life namely to mind and body together with consciousness so that's kind of a really relevant important statement of the buddha regarding what's called the reality limit or the limit of reality, the limit of what's knowable. Buddhism talks about the reality limit or what's knowable. And this just said that this crazy paradoxical relationship is the limit of knowledge. That that's, that's it. And of course, all that's contained in this, your reality is in here. There's nothing beyond this situation. Yep, yep. <laughs> um, 
No, that's really, okay, so all of knowledge is the interaction between consciousness, form, and name. Well, it's this feedback loop. It's truly a feedback loop of me thinking it's a bull and then projecting bull and therefore getting bull back and then having the idea about the bull. And oh, look, a bull. And it's just going around and around and around. And that's ignorance. That's samsara. That's the problem. So the problem of all of this, just to give you a little sneak preview, is this idea of ignorance, avidya. We don't get it. It's a total mistake. We're totally deluded. And out of that delusion, we make totally deluded decisions about this world that then get us mired deeper in the delusion. Then we're like really deep in the delusion and we start making really deluded decisions and now we're like really deep in it. And it's just this constant problem of not understanding what's going on in terms of this dependent origination. So in terms of, I mean, okay. Yeah, all right. How do you, so you don't, I mean, this is uh, just, just causality. There's no... So to keep it on the real practical, remember this thirst leads to seeking acquisition, decision-making, lust, desire for outcome, possessions, the taking up of stick and sword, all of that. that. I mean, do I need to read that again, right? This idea that, oh my gosh, right? Guarding of possessions, that it's thirst or craving that leads to the guarding of possessions. And from the guarding of possessions, the taking up of stick and sword, quarrels, quarrels, disputes, arguments, strife, abuse, lying, all of that comes from thirst. And so indeed, what the, I'm, I'm hoping to get there, I got a half hour, so we'll get there, but the practice of the 12 link chain of causation is the practice of, oh, so if I had no thirst, there would be no seeking for anything. And therefore, no acquisition of anything, and no, I wouldn't have to make decisions about anything. And I wouldn't have to have any leanings towards those decisions coming out any way. And, did it, and I wouldn't have to take up a stick and a sword to beat my friend to protect my possessions. Oh, how wise of me then to not have the craving. It's, so there's a real practical aspect to this, and then there's a really, really profound, like, like worldview-altering thing going on here. Both at the same time, like super practical and super profound. Hi. So, the notion of an I or a self ego, yeah. Um, so I hope I get there because it, it comes up. Then the Buddha asks Ananda. He says, "Hey Ananda. Hey Ananda. This is literally right where we were, by the way. So." <laughs> In what ways, Ananda, do people explain the nature of the self or the I? And Ananda says, well, some declare the self to be made of material, of matter, and limited, meaning finite. This is Ananda. He says, well, some people declare the self to be material and limited, saying myself is material and limited. Some declare it to be material and unlimited, so made of matter, but I'm going to live forever, somehow, in the machine or whatever, right? Some declare it to be material and unlimited. Others declare their self to be immaterial. So I'm not, I'm not made of four. Immaterial, but limited. 
So I got a material form and I have some psychic form, but it's limited. And then, of course, some declare the self to be immaterial and unlimited. So a soul, live forever. Go to heaven, live with God forever, whatever it is, right? So those are the four possibilities, right? And those people say, myself is material and unlimited. I have to explain it because if I read it, it won't. It doesn't. Weird language. But basically what he says is that any of those, they don't have to wait and see. In terms of, are you limited? Are you not limited? Well, we'll find out, right? So they're all predicated on like some future idea. And so, well, what about here and now? Self, here and now. So that's kind of the Buddha's refutation, refuting the self as being rupa. So now he says... Um, and in what ways, Ananda, do people, what, and what other ways do people regard the self? And he says, they equate the self with vidana. Feeling is myself, they say. Or feeling is not myself. Or myself is impressioned. Or feeling is not myself, but myself is not impressioned. Or it is, an, it is of the nature to, or I am of the nature to feel. Complicated stuff, it gets into old Indian philosophy, but I will give you the example of you considering yourself. Do you consider yourself this? It's a question. In terms of the self being vidana or feelings and sensations, imagine yourself, you know, in the virtual reality game, fully immersed, where you are just your experiences you're having right? Your feelings. And yeah, we can get technical about how the virtual apparatus is moving through the physical, but I mean in terms of identifying yourself with the feelings you're having, regardless of how, you know, the form, but the, no, I'm my feelings. This is sort of a common idea and refutation in Buddhism. The identification of the self with the physical body and then the identification with my feelings. And a lot of people not, don't quite know how to understand that. And it's sort of that idea of like, if you were in a virtual reality, you would be identifying just with the experiences, not with the necessarily the physical body of those experiences, right? Or a dream, right. Still, experiences and that sort of uh, sensations, right? Um, he refutes that pleasant feelings are impermanent, condition, dependently arisen, bound to decay, vanish to fade away to cease and basically he says so if you are your feelings if all of a sudden you're in the, the video game and you're having a great time and then they pull the plug and you're not having those feelings are you done and Ananda's like well no and he's like so how could you be your feelings then if if that's the case right okay so I'm gonna need to pause I'm not gonna finish this I want to So this whole, the next part of this, he goes into this very deep part about the dhyanas and the samadhis leading all the way to that state of neither perception nor non-perception. He actually even goes one further than that. But these really deep meditative states. And the reason why he takes this excursion into shamatha or dhyana calming is that he ends this sutra by saying about ananda. When a monk no longer regards feelings as the self or the self as being impression or as being prescient and of a nature to feel, all of those other things, by not so regarding, he clings to nothing in this world. 
not clinging, he is not excited by anything. And not being excited by anything, he gains personal liberation. And he knows birth is finished, the holy life has been led, done, was, done is what had to be done, there's nothing left to do. So he says that the monk who understands Pratitya Samutpata and has entered these deep dionic states all the way up to neither perception or non-perception, he says that monk is called, quote, both ways liberated or liberated two ways. All right? And what that's referring to is, is that in the Theravada Pali tradition, it's Buddhism. So we're talking about Shamatha Vipassana. We're talking about calming and contemplation. That's what makes Buddhism Buddhism. Not just doing meditation, but having an insight into how this world works and what's causing your suffering. All right? That's always the program. But in Theravada Buddhism, there is the notion that our agitated mind and our desires, our tanha, are causing us all this problem. Right? And so there is this notion that by not wanting the things of the world and by closing the sense doors and by basically stopping karma, meaning action of the body, speech, and mind, by bringing that all down, one can cut off or cease their desires for anything in this world. Desire, not need, not biological necessity, but desire. And the idea of Buddhism is that if you cut off all desire... That's nirvana, that's cessation, that's liberation in that sense. No desire, no more suffering, nirvana. That's actually in the, this Theravada tradition, that's called an arhat, a worthy one. Arhat means worthy, in particular worthy of offerings, worthy of food offerings. And so they are, what cessation and nirvana mean is that your mind is not disturbed by this world and desirous of this world. Your mind is totally chill and impartial towards this world. And you can do that. You can meditate your butt off and it actually requires no mentation, no mental activity. It requires you actually not thinking at all to achieve these states. And if you do that, you'll stop desiring if you go deep enough. That's one way liberated. The other way liberated is the end of Vipassana. So nirvana or the cessation is the end of shamatha, the end of calming. The end of calming results in nirvana, in no more desire, no more suffering. That's the no, those are the noble truths. No more, de- no more wanting, no more suffering. There's that, but then there's this whole insight practice of like trying to figure out what's going on here. Why, you know, what are the mechanisms here of causing suffering? Why are we all suffering, all of this? And that is, oh, well, you should understand dependent co-origination, and you should understand these 12 links that are causing this whole thing to keep going around and around and around. And if you understood both of those, meaning you meditated to the point of absolute stillness, nirvana, nirvana, and you had a penetrating realization of all of this, you would be two ways liberated, according to the Theravada tradition. But what two ways liberated really, not really means, but what it means, in the Mahayana tradition, that's the Bodhisattva path. That's all Mahayana is. I don't want to say all it is, but a big chunk of Mahayana Buddhism is they took this, 
this sutra, the Mahanidana Sutra and the Nidana section, they took this idea and they ran with it. So I don't want anybody to think Pratitya Samuppatta is not an original Buddhist idea. It absolutely is. The 12 links are. It's just that Mahayana Buddhism kept going with this idea further and further and further. And the Bodhisattva is this person that is both meditating and working on Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi, supreme, unsurpassable enlightenment. All right? But the Theravada tradition, they don't have a Bodhisattva path. They don't have that. What the Buddha talks about is two ways liberated. Yes? Um, Yes. Um, you explained or text explaining for our, our questions where is the self? But my question is in this um, cycle, where does the thought or the really the idea of the I come from? I heard, you know, it, it, you know, it's ignorance. The basic ignorance of everything is all that we cling to a so-called I. Um, correct? I mean, I come from everywhere, like mm -hmm. conditioning and then form again and I am again and then, but the origin is this in the realm of Advaita? So, <laughs> I, all right, so I'm going to have to step on the gas a little bit, but because I didn't talk about these sort of missing links and Yorubidya. So, very, very quickly, this example that I always give of the straight line and the crooked line, right? And the notion of this straight line being a quote, letter I, part of the alphabet, pronounced I, all of that, right? That my mind, seeing that as the letter I, is dependent upon me thinking that's the letter S, the crooked line is the letter S. And this, back and forth here, and when I do that, and that makes that a number one, because that's now the, the number eight, these are bound up together. And it's not that that's the number one or that's the number eight, it's that they're making each other that way. And as soon as I do one over here, I do something to that. If I get rid of this, I get rid of that. There's that same relationship going on. This is what Pratitya Samuttata means dependently arising. It's not that I've got an I here. And look, that'll make that an S. It's that the S makes it the I and the I makes it the S. But the really like thing about this example, and this is, you know, think about this. A straight line and a crooked line, they, it makes what is. Our very notion of being isness is the, the word I to be it is this is a straight line and a crooked line dependently originating each other in your mind to be letters letters to be notions of I of this is a word to be it's some form of the verb to be right so you see what I'm saying the very notion of being bhava or essence isness is a dependently originated idea Indeed, indeed. Which is why I like to say it's a straight line and a crooked line. No, it's like that's all they really are, and yet it has so much meaning and significance to us in all kinds of ways, right? 
effect. So let's talk about, so first of all, Pratitya Samutpata, dependent origination, is this co-arising, not one causing the other, but rising together, that these all arise together. That's the idea. So dependent origination, yes, it means that birth is what causes there to be death. And actually, there being an essence of anything is what causes that. And this is what causes that. So yes, it goes around this way. But yes, ignorance or avidya is what causes all of these to be. So you said it exactly. And in fact, having these conditional formations causes all of these to be. Oh, no, wait. Having consciousness or a discriminative consciousness is what causes all of it. Oh, no, wait. It's ha oh, wait. That's the idea. Any one of them is actually causing them all to be. It's a matrix of samsara, how this world comes to be. I didn't talk too much about these. You mentioned avidya. So no, ah, no vidya. Vid means actually to see. It means to see very clearly. Avidya, no clear seeing, ignorance. This is indeed the sort of the, the big link in the chain, maybe the weak link, maybe the strongest link in this chain. So there's a lot of time spent on avidya or ignorance. But the whole idea of it is, of this, is that we don't understand this. We think that we're a self, individual essence, having gone through life, all of that, that was, or that, that's going to die, because I was born, because I'm something, clinging to my shit because I want it, because I like it, da 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 da. Right? So that's avidya is causing all this, not understanding, right? And the idea of a samskara, which is one of our skandhas, translated as conditioning, the idea of ignorance is oh, look, a bull. So that's ignorant, right? But I don't know that because I'm ignorant. So I go, look, a bull. So I've created a samskara, a mental formation of, look, a bull. Oh, I did it again. I'm, I've made that groove in my mental formation a little deeper. Anybody want to buy a bull? Oh, a little deeper. Do you see what I'm saying? So samskaras are these buildup of wrong ideas over and over and over pertaining to everything, in particular the subject-object relationship and all of that. And so it's this mental, these, you know, conditioning, wrong, ignorant conditioning that give rise to consciousness. But discriminative vijnana is arisen from this, you got it wrong and you keep getting it wrong. And so what vijnana is, what consciousness is in, is in Buddhism is the exercise of getting it wrong. Right? So we don't get what, we don't understand what's going on. We build up these mental conditionings that are totally wrong. And that's where our thinking comes from. Oh, look, it's me in a bowl. Subject, object, and bowl. Vijnana works via nama rupa, name and form. Bowl. Hollow. Bowl. Right? So, name and form is, Vijnana gives rise to name and form. This is where it gets interesting in terms of the traditional 12 links, is what it says is, is that I don't know what's going on. And so I keep building up these mental formations that are wrong. And it's out of all of that that this consciousness comes into being and goes around being like, oh, like a bowl, a microphone, all of these different things, right? Naming and form, naming things out of their form. 
Well, the other thing that Vijnana does, Vayanama Rupa, is distinguish or disambiguate what I'm seeing from what I'm hearing, from what I'm smelling, from what I'm tasting. So the decision that I heard that, it comes after the labeling, after the consciousness. There's a really interesting little, that was, you had brought that up, that actually the decision of it being six knots, six consciousnesses, is an act of namarupa, which is an act of consciousness. Six senses is not a fact of physiology. If that makes sense, which is what you said. Like, oh yeah, no, we've got six or five senses or six senses, but no, this says name and form gives rise to an understanding of how I'm coming to have these experiences. And once all that's sorted out, once I've got all of that sorted out of what I'm seeing, all of that, then I have contact via my tactility, my eyes, my ears, my nose. And of course, once I have contact, I make a decision. Was that positive, negative, or neutral? Did I like it? Does it look pretty? Is it not pretty and I don't want to look at it anymore? Or do I just not care one way or the other? So I have contact with the things of this world via my senses, and then I either like them or I don't like them or I'm neutral about them, and that causes me to have thirst or craving. And again, thirst or craving doesn't necessarily just have to be for the positive. Craving can be to get as far away from the negative as possible. So craving, or sorry, yeah, thirst or desire can be for stuff or like against stuff. That can be a desire or a craving for it's not to happen. So I come into contact through my senses that I've divided up name and form based on my consciousnesses, which is based on a bunch of wrong information because of my ignorance. Contact leading to these positive negative situations or sensations which produce this desire, and then that desire is what brings about this clinging. And the clinging, again, it can be like this kind of clinging, but it can also be clinging in the sense of like, so remember when there was that terrible noise upstairs going off? It was like an alarm clock or something for a while, right? So event, I've namarupa'd and decided I'm hearing it, it's via my hearing that I'm coming into contact with that annoying noise, and I don't like it. I don't like it. So I desire for it to go away, right? And let's say, miraculously, it's shut off. I would be clinging to the moments, hoping that it doesn't come back. Right? That's a form of clinging, too. So the clinging doesn't just have to be physically to, like, my wallet, my stuff, the clinging can be to like hoping this doesn't change type of a thing, right? And then from the clinging, which of course gives rise to seeking acquisition and all of that, it is from the clinging that the bhava or the essence arises. And this is the really interesting one that I'm very happy we got to tonight. Because what Buddhism is saying is that the bowl, as the bowl, is arising from me clinging to it as the bowl. Bhava arises from the clinging, the mental clinging or physical clinging, whatever it is. 
But the idea of Buddhism is that because nothing has a svabhava, because of anatman, because there's no self, well, then what causes this illusion of all of these things and, and this thing? Clean. This is what the Buddha's been saying all along, that the notion of a self or an atman comes from clinging. Because as I've described it many times, what is a self? What is an atman? An atman or a self is your understanding that you were once born, were a toddler, went to elementary school, went to whatever school, whatever, grew up, and you're now this older person, an older version of that. And the soul or the self is the notion that you have been there the whole time being the recipient of all those experiences. That it was you that was nervous the first day of elementary school. That it was you that was uh, excited about your prom or your high school prom. That it was you that did all of that. The notion that it was you that went through all those experiences, that's an atman, that's a self. Welcome to yourself. Welcome to your notion of self, right? And the Buddhism is saying, the Buddha is saying, well, where does that atman, where does that self come from? A clinging to that very notion of, I went to elementary school, I went to my prom, I, I, I. That's a form of clinging that, that produces an essence. Michael, he went to, he, he. And Buddhism is talking about ignorance, meaning that you can have the illusion of the bowl. You know what I mean? Like, that just because the Buddha is like, guess what? Clinging is giving a rise to the illusion of a bhava, to the illusion of a self or an entity. It's giving rise to it. But it's still a, an illusory idea of a bowl. Right? But we, the, the wisdom of this is to understand its true empty nature in that sense. And being like, oh no, it's not a bowl actually. It's bowl-shaped, currently. It's currently bowl-shaped. And if I go digging long enough for it, the presupposition, if I go digging long enough for it, I will realize that it is only the result of the subject-object relationship, meaning the other. There is no it. There is only that which I don't recognize as myself, which then I will give a name based on its form, and experience, have contact with, like, and don't like, all the way around. So which means when there is no object yet, and it's all only media, the whole cycle of suffering is cut through, and there's basically at the very end not, not, um, not brought in that because there's no eye that is solid. And, and mm -hmm. Yes. So a lot of this so again, this is about dependent co-origination, so it's about these two being like a letter I and a letter S and then coming together, but that it's also about how each of these links condition all the others, so it's a kind of a real patitya samupata jenga, where it's sort of all interlocked in that way. And there's a very interesting thing in terms of, this gets uh, represented as a mandala, and in the root of it is uh, greed, hatred, and delusion. That's the hub that causes all this to go around. 
And then traditionally, this is divided into six sections, I think, five or six sections, which are the stations of rebirth. You can be reborn as a human, an animal, a hungry ghost, and all of that. And then these are outside of here. And this is a representation of samsara. The idea being that this is the wheel. This turns around and around with each of these causing each to be in that way. And there's a order in the sense that it is from misunderstanding this. That's the cause of ignorance, that we don't understand this. We get this wrong. We identify with the vaginally born dying body, and then we're like, oh, so I was born, therefore I must be, and it goes round and round and round. Yes? So I would say the starting point is avidya, and what is happening is, is if, if um, uh, uh, my example of elementary school, high school prom, now here I am, and oh look, aging and death, aging and death, birth's over there, aging and death is over there, right? I just said that the notion of a self is that it was me that went to elementary school, went to the high school prom, and all of that. And there's a persistent delusion of that. And it's reinforced with pictures and Facebook and all this stuff, the notion that that's true, right? So the ignorance is that that little kid was me that was born, that will die. So the root is the ignorance about that being me. I'm this momentary coalescence of five aggregates having some crazy experience seeking enlightenment. That's what this is, right? But it is not, or at least I have made it my practice to not identify with that which is born. Because that which is born is going to die. I don't want to identify with that which dies. I'm trying to identify with enlightenment in that sense. Or actually, I'm not trying to identify with anything at all. That's the actual Buddhist practice. It's just non-identification, non-clinging in that sense. And actually, non-identification would be no nama rupa. And I just said, if you cut off any one of these, the whole house of cards falls apart. Take your pick. So, so exactly on that point, the Buddha himself, let's say, uh, you know, like under the tree, cuts off ignorance, uh, but he's still continuing to live for a number of years after that. Uh, and I assume that he still had some eyes working with some contact happening and stuff like stuff was still going on uh some of that right so no what exactly no so? no so how was he teaching or, or walking well this is the mystery or not the mystery but this is the the thing that buddhism is talking about is that prior to buddhism it was like yeah if you meditated long enough you would achieve this state but as soon as you opened your eyes you're back and Buddhism is actually talking about a living in a nirvanic state. And the way that's achieved is by not attaching to a self. The Buddha has no eyes in that sense. And this is, what, this is actually the meaning and the mystery of Tathagata, the thus come one. Thus come one means no elementary school, high school prom. Thus come one means, yo, what's up? Like present, pure presence. 
in that sense. What would it be like to not identify with the past, not identify with the future, and to actually not be clinging to anything, meaning clinging even to selfhood, to notion of selfhood. If you were to really, really be non-attached, not clinging, really not craving at all, 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 at all. That's Buddhahood. That's a, what a Buddha is. And apparently, yeah, apparently it's a achievable state in that way. But meditate on that idea, though, of, I mean, I know all of this is very, um, you know, profound or tricky or whatever, but it's rooted in this idea of, of anatman, no self, no essence, that this is a deluded notion. You totally have it twisted. I mean, one of the things, I also wanted to mention this really quick. I don't know if you've noticed who we were talking to all night, Ananda. And if the Shurangama Sutra that we just spent four nights on, it was also Ananda. There's an interesting relationship between dependent origination and Ananda. In particular, Ananda not getting it. And so there is potentially a way in which the Mahanidana Sutta is like the the uh, inspiration or the impetus for the Shurangama Sutra. Meaning like the Shurangama Sutra is like a wild Mahayana version of the Mahanidana Sutta. We're talking to Ananda, we're talking about these causation. So it's kind of why I wanted to do this one following up on that one. Question. I realized, as you say, that you pull out any one of these things and the whole thing that kind of falls apart. But I keep looking, I'm sort of hung up on the Vedana mm -hmm. aspect because you circle plus, circle minus, <laughs> those things lead to those things. Neutrality, I don't see how neutrality could lead to craving or thirst or anything else, right? Yeah. I mean, so the connection of what I'm thinking is, so is that part of the goal of Shamatha practice is to and to get to that equanimity place where I guess it's like I know that it's like you have neutral and you have, excuse me a positive and negative and you let those things pass and it's you don't place a value judgment on it but if it's neutral you don't have to do anything so is it to have the view that things are everything is neutral because that seems like sort of a, a key element there because if, if you feel neutrally about it that really kind of that's the whole thing two things. <laughs> the first thing about neutral is yes there is a couple of suttas on vidana and they talk about the neutral and the neutral are interesting there's a way in which we spend a lot of our time uh, especially if we're dharma practitioners where we'll spend a lot of our time looking at negative looking at positive but neutral and the buddha actually spends time and says no 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 we should really be mindful of neutral because those are a little window into upeka or upeksha. So there is, there is something about neutral that it is a little like not quite so bad in that sense. As long as it's not apathy. Well, right? d definitely, yeah. definitely, definitely. Right. Yeah, because neutral, I, I describe it as, you know, if you're sitting in a cafe and you're doing your work and a song comes on that you really like and it distracts you from doing your work, that's because you've been... A clinging to the song you like. Then if annoying songs comes on and you can't work because you don't like it. But then there's songs that just come on that you don't even notice and you're just doing your work. That, there's, again, Buddhisms and Buddhas like, yo, let's pay attention to neutral because that's a certain kind of upekshik, impartial kind of thing. 
So it's like, yeah, pay attention to these. However, we're still like, you know, we're trying to get rid of the Atman. We're trying to get rid of the agent, the self, the sense of self. So even the, whether it's I don't like it, I, or I like it, I don't like it, or I'm impartial to it, it's still an I. And I'm not just saying that as like a knee-jerk reaction. It's actually like in terms of what I've been trying to get across, anything that's about me and my experience. This is, Pratitya Samudpata, by the way, is not just about this, it's about this. It's about the whole karma ball that we're all involved in and how it's all coming to be collectively. This is a grand collective process, if that makes sense. This is about, again, samsara, the whole cycle that pertains to us individually, but it's about Mara's realm. And that's why the, um, if this were the mandala with the three poisons, the six stations, and the 12 link chain, there would be the big image of Mara who's grabbing this, and that's his realm. We're in Mara's realm, and he controls us through all of these misunderstandings. The other night, uh, someone said that um, greed, hatred, and delusion, like another way of thinking of them, are attraction, aversion, and indifference. And it's indifference, that neutrality, that leads to the negative aspects of neutrality. Yeah, I, I myself have taught it that way in the past. And I think there's a way that these corollaries, let's call them, right, correlating this with that. There's a way in which those corollaries are helpful and are true and work. And there's other ways in which everything that's in threes doesn't need to be matched up with everything in threes in that way. So, but I, I too, again, have taught the negative, new, negative, positive, neutral kind of matches the three poisons in that way. Okay. So, yes. So you can do it, but just don't get too attached to that as... You know. <laughs> but, but I have a question yeah. about, I keep going, I'm thinking about the, uh, the Nama Rupa and the Baba. I'm not sure how the others connect to it, but they seem really similar. And it seems like there's like a, there's a delusion of separateness in both of them. And, and then I have a hard time, like it feels redundant or something, or like it's not really a wheel, there's, that it should be a different shape or something. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, in that regard, in terms of this being um, a description of how babies are born, yeah, right? The idea of that, and I've seen, this is another one where you can go online and see them, where they say, oh yeah, this is the, what do they say? Oh, like, like, this is the first life, right. second life, third, it's actually three lifetimes, and I'm kind of like, okay. But on that note, Self. Bhava coming so late, yeah. the idea of a thing, yeah. it comes so late. Yeah. That's the important part about this, yeah. is that the very notion of the singular bowl that I can buy, collect, sell, the, the notion of singularity bhava, it only comes about after all of this. But isn't it part of name and form also? Well, no, but this is where the name and form is just dis about how I experience anything at all. And then I'm going to come into contact. So, I mean, again, let's talk through it. We go, I totally don't understand what's going on, in particular subject-object relationship. 
oh look, a bull. It's not a bull, but I'm gonna build up that samskaric process, right? So that, I'm thinking about the, well actually, it gets tricky because this is about my whole, uh, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a human on a planet, vaginally born. Like there's so much that brings about the consciousness, which then brings about the naming and the forming, which brings about how I'm experiencing, how I'm having contact, which is what allows me to like it or not like it, want it or not want it, cling to it or not cling to it. And after all of that, then you get to the thing that I am clinging to, that I crave, that I like or don't like, that it feels like this based on these sensations, da 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 da. But I thought that's what name form was. No, no, name and form are up here. Bhava is out here. And I, I, it gets tricky because we're already so enlightened that we know there's no, no, I'm serious. You already know there's no out there, but I'm being serious in that this refers to this, my, my cognitive processes. This refers to that which I am cognitive about. Which could be me. Exactly. And then it, it's like, oh, I don't understand what's going on. Da, 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 da. Michael, born, gonna die. How are we doing that? I keep thinking that. <laughs> that's what I mean. It, that's samsara. Literally, that joke is samsara. That I keep getting it wrong, and so I keep coming back into this world and being like, wait, what's going on? Around and around and around. So you mentioned a couple times that in this context, it's about like a bird, like an actual literal bird, but uh, it's easy to see this as a moment-to-moment uh, rebirth of every you know, moment of perception or something Yes. As well. Is that how you understand it as well, or is it just like a more modern... So, if you read the original Mahanidana Sutta in the Diga Nikaya, They seem to be talking specifically about embryos coming into uh, 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 being and then born, being born and dying. If you read the ones in here, though, they seem to be talking a little bit more like, well, maybe we're talking about beings or maybe we're talking about bowls. Like, we're talking just about everything. We're talking about the whole world in that regard. And then eventually... Nagarjuna comes and takes this very idea as a Mahayana philosopher, and he basically says, oh no, this principle explains all phenomena manifesting. All bowls, all everything, sounds, notions of self, everything is actually a product of dependent co-origination. So yeah, from the early days of how babies are born to the, the wildest Tibetan Buddhism about dream reality, it's all based on this pratitya samutpata. Uh, this is very fascinating. Uh, one thing I'm kind of curious about is you mentioned that it's, it's a wheel, so if you cut off any parts of it, then it all falls apart. But I guess the question I have for you is, in, in Buddhism, what are the main levers that they look at? I mean, are they saying that the main lever should be uh, attacking ignorance? And you mentioned earlier, attacking craving. Yep. The main ones are always the ignorance and craving. For some reason, these two are the big culprits, that we don't get it, and then we love it, or we hate it. But we love and hate that which we don't understand, and that keeps the whole thing going around and around. Yeah, those two are definitely targeted, because a lot of these other ones, it's like contact, and these things are just like the results, sort of, but it's like, nah, this one we have some control over. Not that we don't have control over all of them in that sense, but... Yeah, those two are, are key. 
so much. Yay, we did it. <laughs>